This is episode 176 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 176 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I have Dan Illis on the show, and Dan is a very technical real estate investor, primarily a real estate developer, and he also talked about some of the technical stuff he does with water metering on this podcast. So some of you who have been following this podcast for a while probably reached out to me and uh, asked me about who does my sub metering because I have a duplex where I wanted to have a separate meter meter uh, usage so I could build it back to tenants. Dan was actually a guy that helped me out with that. And then he actually, after the fact, sort of started up a company around that. So he talks a little bit about that on this show, which I thought was kind of useful. Uh, he's not paying me to say that. It's just something I thought was useful. On the development side of things, Dan talked about how he buys multiple properties and does infill development. He also works with a fellow investor that's been on this podcast before, Charles Waugh. So Dan does a similar strategy and he's also partnered with those guys. And it's very interesting to see how he's made progress over the years. With that said, I want to mention that if you're new to real estate investing, it's great to go right back to episode one because we've had so many great episodes with so many great investors uh, that have shared their stories. And uh, that information is right there for you to use and apply in your own real estate investing activities. So I highly recommend you take the time to do that if you haven't done that already. And if you wouldn't mind, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please give it a five star. And if you're watching on YouTube, uh, hit the like, subscribe and notification bell. And if you could leave a comment, that'll just help more people to find the show. So without further ado, let's jump into episode 176 with Dan Illis. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Dan Illis. Got it right? You got it right. <laughs> On the show. And uh, Dan and I connected about a year, year and a half ago. He helped me out with some stuff, some water meeting, metering solutions, which we're going to talk about on this show and everything else Dan's up to. So he's an investor primarily. And you're going to tell me the story, Dan. So rather than me, me tell it, you go ahead. Sure. Uh, I've been investing for about four or five years now, and I've done a bunch of different types of investments, but my bread and butter has kind of been severing properties, um, little infill developments and flipping land. Uh, so that's kind of where I've made my forte. Um, the other, the other thing I do as well, yeah. which you alluded to, is um, I do provide uh, water submetering uh, solutions for yeah. other landlords and property managers as well. Yeah, so we'll go one one chunk at a time. Uh, so the water meter thing, I don't even remember why we connected over that. Maybe you just brought it up to me because I was asking. I'm like, does anyone have a solution? Because when you have a duplex and you don't want to pay the thirty thousand dollars to add in an extra service. Um, you have to have something. So you had this submetering solution that you were using. You suggested it to me. I, I bought it. And then you started becoming the Canadian dealer, I think, for, for this. I did. I started out as a customer with my own duplex, very similar to your own. Um, I had a lot of interest in it from other investors. So I connected with the manufacturer mm -hmm. and started offering that to other investors. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a little on the techie side, but you've been able to help me with that. And, um, I, I I like that that I can actually more specifically charge the water now because it was a constant battle with the tenants. They're like they're watering their lawns, they're doing this, they're filling a pool. You know, we're not using forty percent of the water; they're using all of it. And you know what? They were right because <laughs> I had it sixty forty, and it should have been seventy thirty. So. I I was 
blown away when I saw kind of those the water usage at your duplex personally. Yeah. There was quite the split on that. Um, yeah. And I guess just to your your point about the $30,000 for a new water service, you're, you're correct. Uh, a lot of cities won't even let you bring a mm-hmm. second service in. Uh, a lot of cities won't even let you put a second public meter on it. So what I've been providing people is a solution to kind of sub-meter your water yourself and pass costs along to tenants. So where a lot of landlords are trying to do a 50-50 split or a 60-40 split, this actually tracks the exact water usage mm-hmm. and you can invoice your tenants based on what yeah. they actually use. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And this is not a paid promo. I haven't received any money for this, but it's just been useful. So I'm, and I've had people ask, so I'm, I'm sharing this. Um, but I, I'm able to go online. You shared with me like this little portal. I can go online. I can, um, see exactly date ranges so i'll just get like three months of bills or now my assistant is doing it monthly she'll just track hey this is a 28 day period let's track water usage over this and then she gets a percentage and she just multiplies it out and sends off the numbers there's still a bit of work to do like Mm -hmm. you know the, the the negative of it is it's quite a bit of administration to build back water um so if most people, like if you don't have a lot of rentals, it works. If you're if you're doing it on a lot, you might want to have an assistant doing that for you because it's a lot of work. Yeah, a couple of things I'd add to that. Like if if your city were to give you two public meters, that that is still the best way to go. This is kind of a next best solution to that. Yeah. Um, one one experience I've had with my own uh, property where I'm using it is you can see the water usage day by day, week by week, month by month. Um, I had my lower unit move a tenant in without telling me and you could spot exactly which day they had someone move in because you could just see the water usage go up and stay up. So it's a good way to also keep tenants accountable mm-hmm. should they be abusing water, which is going to abuse your fixtures. And it can ultimately just kind of help you have a better idea of what's going on behind yeah. the walls of your investment. Unfortunately, I feel like it's kind of hard to do anything about that. Like, I, I'm pretty sure we were just talking about one of my tenants because you know him now. <laughs> and uh, I feel like he's got like an, another family living in there with him uh, to split his rent up, which isn't fantastic. But yes, I could tell from the water. But what am I going to do about that? I mean, I guess maybe there is something I can do about that. But I mean, he's the tenant. He kind of use the unit as he sees fit. I think you'd have to have something off the get-go in your lease that addresses water usage yeah. and consumption and how much. Like, I think that yeah. would kind of be the best way to... Right. That. Well, in this case, they've agreed to just be billed what they're actually using. So um, it's not without its headaches, right? But I mean, I think for all these people who buy these Hamilton duplexes and they have one meter, um, many are fine with the 60-40 split, but that occasionally you're going to get a tenant that's going to make your life uh, very unenjoyable because that's what you're doing. Uh, so this is a good alternative. But yeah, like you said, municipal's best. The reason that I found out that wouldn't work for me is there is like a frontage fee that you have to pay. Mm-hmm. And then you have to pay a city's hired excavator to dig into the road, which is going to be like five grand on that portion. And then I'd have to pay my own excavator to bring in the water line. And I'd have to tee it outside the house. Or sorry, you can't tee it. You you actually have to have two separate lines come in off the main uh, so I have my existing one off the main and I have to come in right off the main with a new one, which is all nonsense. Like really we could just put two city meters inside, but they won't allow that. So occasionally a city will allow the, yeah, two some meter. will London won't. Yeah. Yep. Um, and yeah, just to, uh, to your point there, what the city specifically looks for is they want to be able to shut water off to each individual unit. So they're going to want a curb stop, which is essentially yeah. the water operation valve that you see in your front yard. And they're going to yeah. want two of them either in a Y or a T situation, or like you said, an actual separate yeah. water line. Yeah. Coming off the main. 
Yeah, so I, some of it makes sense. The whole frontage fee, which is basically like the equivalent of a development charge, that was going to be like eight or ten grand plus everything else. I'm just like, okay, yeah, you guys are not playing ball. Whereas other cities, I, I believe Welland, it's like no problem. They'll just give it to you. And I don't know if they have the demand for the, the shutoff. So, I mean, people interested in this, just check with your municipality first because obviously city meter is best. But if, you know, secondary solution would be this. Okay, so then the next thing I wanted to talk about, um, well, you're doing a lot of stuff. But maybe just give me the backstory. Like, what were you doing as a full-time gig? Are you still working full-time? And then what led you into the real estate investing you do? Sure. I worked for about 11 years as a civil engineering tech. So that's a lot of drafting and design, AutoCAD, Civil 3D. And um, I would also do field inspection on big municipal projects uh, during the summer months. Um, so I did that for, yeah, about 11 years, um, at a couple of different companies. And then last September, I left my career to go into real estate investing full time. Um, so yeah, kind of when, when I started the very first project I purchased was an in, infill severance orient oriented project, which I'm now actually building out, uh, as we speak right now. So that's, this is sort of the first severance project you did, or is this, one of many like how, where does this fall in the chronology of you as an investor sure so this was the first one i bought um i, I severed that one uh, but then i started purchasing other ones which i've also severed so the first one i bought took a few years before i actually put shovel in the ground to start doing a new construction on it okay and was, did you have other rental projects before that? Or is this the first kind of that falls in as an investment real estate? That was my first. It kind of became my first rental by default because mm-hmm. um, the way this one worked, it's it's in the city of Woodstock. My mom and her husband owned a duplex on a corner lot. And this corner lot was very deep. It was about 150 feet back. So mm-hmm. we ended up looking at, can you can we sever their rear yard onto the yeah. adjacent street? Uh, the answer was no, it wasn't deep enough, although there would be plenty of frontage. They said you would have to purchase the property next door and use part of its backyard. Uh, a couple years went by, the property next door went for sale, and I snagged that thing right away uh, because I'd been eyeing this up for, for years. So okay. when, I, when you talk about my first rental, it so was the existing yeah. house yeah. that became my first rental okay. uh, on that Nice. Okay, so you bought this house next to it in Woodstock. I actually went to high school in Woodstock, lived Likewise. there for a while. You did? Yeah. Huh. Your name looked familiar. Are we similar age? Uh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> probably. Maybe we've maybe we've crossed paths in the in the past. Um, okay, so uh, you found these two properties. Well, you you now have two. And then what was the next step? Like they were both single family homes. Uh, my mom's was a duplex, which would have been a single family home at one point, And mine was a single family home. Uh, so kind of the process I went through on that is um, when I purchased that home, I didn't just purchase it blindly. Um, as a drafter and a civil tech oriented person, um, I actually went and found all the online information, the digital mapping, uh, infrastructure data. And I drew up a drawing ahead of time, which I presented to the planning department uh, for Oxford County, which is Woodstock. And I had them comment on it before I actually purchased the property. So the city mm-hmm. already gave me the, yes, we would support this. And then I purchased the house. So I is that the first of the two that you bought or that was the second of the two? That was the first one I bought, but it's yeah. it was both a combination of my mom's property plus mine. So we, okay. we ended up severing the rear yards off of both 
of yeah. those houses and we actually got two lots out of that so how did your mom come into this equation because you bought the one on the corner and then bought the one beside it that's no, what i thought okay. no she she owned the one on the corner just as a oh, okay. as an investment okay and then um and then i kind of got involved and we started looking yeah. at this whole severance thing okay all right so then you so you worked it out so before she bought that one you had already eyed it up no, before I bought mine. So I bought the second one. Oh, the second she, one. She had just bought yeah. that as a as an investment for her okay. and her husband. So. Okay, so then you just worked out a deal to buy it from her or, or no, put her in on the profit? No, with me okay. on, on that partnered one. with them on it? Yep. Okay, so you got into that. Now you have two properties. Are you managing both like while they're rental properties? Yeah, and, and honestly, it's been a huge leg up during the new construction because I have I have the yards of the existing properties to store stuff on to work work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, one interesting thing about this project, it is kind of been a grading nightmare. There's a huge crossfall across the property, which had me building a ten foot high retaining wall just to make this this infill happen. Oh wow! Uh, still worth it all day long, but yeah. it's definitely like a challenge I had to account for when doing this. Okay, so talk to me about what you sent to the city, like to start before you bought it. You know what you sketched it out. You you kind of sketched in how you would be connecting services and things like that, or like what did you give them? So what I gave them, and this is. I'll kind of walk you through how I go about this because I, I do this repeatedly when I go after severance projects is um, I'll, I'll go online and I'll find the digital mapping. So every county yeah. city pretty much has yeah, they have digital mapping. Um, and I guess just a tip, if you find a city or a town that doesn't, you can still find digital mapping maybe through the River Conservation Authority or there's other resources yeah. that you can still find it or, or, or even double check. Uh, the mapping. So I'll go through, uh, I will find the property, um, look at the size of it. Next thing I do is look at the zoning and then I look at like what's required to sever or to do an infill development. So first thing I look at is like, what's the required frontage? Yeah. Do I have enough? Am I close? Um, what's the required area again? Do I have enough? Am I close? Right. So that's kind of how I start with it. So you're starting and, and if you don't have enough, then it's, well, maybe I can still do it. Minor variance. Do you ever go after a minor variance when you don't quite meet the requirements? All the time. And this, this one yeah. in Woodstock ended up needing five minor variances, um, which the city was all in support of because this was going to be two lots right downtown Woodstock, right? So the city mm-hmm. had an appetite for this kind of infill. Um, the other thing I'd say when it comes to minor variances, sometimes it's possible to get a sense ahead of time if the city is going to support it or not. And the way to do that is to go look up what they have been supporting. So mm-hmm. I like I actually what I did in Woodstock, someone was doing a very similar one to mine. I went to the committee of adjustment meeting. I sat there, I watched the whole thing, kind of watched how it went down, saw what they approved for that one. And uh, I've kind of done that time and time again. That's a smart, smart thing to do. Actually, that would probably be a very time well worthwhile like to spend as an wannabe investor developer mm-hmm. go to those meetings find out when the when the meetings are for those relevant uh projects how do you find out about those meetings uh, you know honestly, it's even easier now um since the whole pandemic thing everything's moved online so you don't even have to go in person so a lot of times i can go on youtube and find find past meetings but even even more useful than that 
they just post their agendas and their minutes, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll might look through meeting minutes yeah. and see, okay, this guy did a severance. They gave him a two meter minor variance on frontage. Mm-hmm. Well, I only need a meter and a half. Yeah. So I, I know I'm sitting pretty well. So you, you have a pretty good feel as to whether or not the city officials will support it because mm-hmm. it's very similar to what they've supported in the past, but that's only one part of the requirement, right? Because the city officials need to support it. They circulate documents to the committee. Mm-hmm. And then the committee also hears uh, the residents if they have objections. But they're supposed to be objective with regard to the nature of a minor variance, right? Some of these people just say, I don't like that. Exactly. Sometimes that works, though. Sometimes that works, right? It, it does, and I can comment on that. So, so far, all all the severing I've done, I've actually had very little pushback. But when it comes to neighbors or, or anyone pushing back on your development, your severance, your minor variance, the only thing they can actually bring up that really carries any water, again, for the most part, is it has to be a planning-related reason. It has to be mm-hmm. um, that uh, we, the city has this kind of density target here, and this development's going to put us over. Like It has yeah. to be actually rooted in uh, planning reasons. It can't just be, I've lived here for 30 years, I don't want a house there. Um, that really doesn't fly. And no matter, kind of no matter how mad the, the neighborhood gets, if... If what you're doing is consistent with what the city wants in their mm. official plan, their zoning, and what the province wants, you've got a very good chance of getting it through. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people say, you know, 99% of the time if city officials support it, it's likely to go through. Now, I'm sure that varies by municipality. I'm sure there's some that are just wild cards. Yep. But um, so that's the key thing. Because if the city officials, say the people in zoning or the people in in uh, the building department don't agree or they have a, a problem with it, like you did, it's probably better to circulate that to them ahead of time. Say, do you have any issue with this? Or how would you like to see it changed if you need it changed? Yeah. One other thing to consider, too, is like when a property is listed, you don't have a lot of time, right? You're Typically, you're in multiples. You don't have a lot of time. Uh, cities can be very slow to get back to you as well. So in a perfect world... Uh, yeah, you would you would take your inquiry to the city, have them comment on it. But that, again, when you're looking at something on market, that's not always possible. So that's especially where finding meeting minutes and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that, seeing what they have been approving is can be extremely helpful. Um, if you're looking at something off market and you have some time, yeah, get mm-hmm. get some drawings, go, go talk to the planners yeah. and do what you need to do. So you basically need to know what you're doing beforehand. It helps big time. Yeah, I mean, so, and this is the the thing about becoming an expert, right? If you're an expert or you, you sort of take the time to shadow experts and sort of become a little bit of an expert yourself, um, then when you see an opportunity, you can recognize it. But so many people, I think they haven't seen enough deals to know what's a deal, mm-hmm. right? And you don't know until you look at a bunch. I mean, how, how likely is it that somebody's going to go out and buy their first, the first property that they researched from a development standpoint? It's It's tough. And you know what? There's a lot of pitfalls and there's a lot of ways to swing and miss on on stuff like this um like i'll give you one example like sometimes i find realtors are quick to use terminology things like double lot and severance Mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily know if they've checked on Mm -hmm. the zoning you don't know that maybe you need a couple minor variances in the town you're in are not approving them like when when i go through this i've actually like kind of systematized it to some degree and like I can kind of walk you through how I look at one of these from from start to finish 
um, kind of the way I look at it is like I previously said, I, I look at like the size of the property and the zoning that that's number one, uh, because if, if it's too small or it doesn't conform by a long shot, then it's kind of a non-starter, but there's a lot of other things that can burn you as well when it comes to this. And one would be, is the property in a river conservation authorities jurisdiction? Yeah, avoid those <laughs> for the most part, but it's not it's not yeah. a complete no either. If, if you need a minor variance, my experience is that it's just pretty much a no. Like if you're intensifying in a floodplain, say it's like a that was my experience in London. It was an immediate no if you needed a minor variance. If you conformed with zoning, then they would they would approve it as long as you met certain requirements. It also depends too. Like if if your whole property is in the river conservation authority for example i looked at one where the rear of the property was the front of the property was not Mm -hmm. and if you kept your development out of their jurisdiction you'd be fine um there's other stipulations they can put on you that might not be an outright no but if you're in a river conservation authority's jurisdiction you may not be able to regrade that area they don't like you regrading so what that could mean for you is maybe you have to build a big retaining wall in order to not mm-hmm. change the grading in in their jurisdiction oh okay um just just to your point on on floodplains too like yeah typically you can't build traditional residential in floodplains but that's not to say you can't build anything ever. Uh, there might be solutions where you do a garage main level and build something on top of it because that way there's no living space on on the main level, right? Interesting. Um, and there's a big difference too between being in a floodplain and being in a river conservation authority's jurisdiction. So if you're in the jurisdiction, again, like I said, they can put various stipulations on you. They could maybe make you do monitoring wells to check the groundwater um but it doesn't necessarily mean it's an outright no okay it's 100 percent something you want to check for though yeah just be yeah be aware of it know how it might slow you down and then talk to those people ahead of time for like, sure f- find whoever in those offices you need to speak with and then bring them a coffee if they'll take it <laughs> the uh the couple other like things you could really get burned on is is infrastructure so um uh, making sure that it's there um like you're saying sewers are there sewers and water so like for example uh i looked at one in london and mm-hmm. it was on a street that had been there forever but it was a corner lot and um and so the severance would be onto the corner lot well the corner lot didn't have sewer and water on it mm-hmm. right so all you would have to pay to extend the sewer main and water main a ways down that yeah. side street um, and there goes your profit. There goes your profit. That's very expensive to do. Um, yeah. Like another one would be like more rural places. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're on water main, but maybe they're still on septic. And so that that can cause some problems because if you're completely rural, you might have to do a septic and well, which is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I came across, um, I did another one in Wasaga Beach and their zoning was completely contingent upon if there is water, if there is sanitary or or not. So if there was water and sanitary, the square meters that you needed was only like 460. If there was on if there was no water main and sewer, it yeah. was like 10 times that because you had yeah. to support a well and septic bed. Yeah, the the issue would be the septic engineer probably needs drainage, right? They need a certain like if you have sandy soil, you barely need any space, but if it's more like clay, then you need tons of space. 
septic beds in general just require quite a bit of space and, yeah. and a buffer around that. So. Not so much in Florida. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, not, not where I'm, because it's all sand. So they just got like, uh, I've actually seen them. They're only like, I don't know, 25 feet by 25 feet, the whole bed. It, it, it's crazy. They, they don't even bury their water mains there. Like they're literally on oh, yeah, ground. Yeah. You have I, water mains coming right out of the front lawn. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, traditionally they would be quite expensive. It's a little cheaper down where I'm building down there just because of um, the way they're doing them, which is nice. There's, I guess, like before I move off from the, the infrastructure component here, sometimes too, when you see a property that can be severed, there's like a reason why no one's done it before. Yeah. And one of the reasons could be, is there a giant sewer under the side lot? Is there a big yeah. water main under there? And it's like, how, how do you know about that? Well, there are ways to find that out. And the city's infrastructure time. map, right? They have yes, but the problem with that is not many cities just give you their infrastructure on mapping. I know Hamilton's very good that way, but the majority, in my experience, do not. So there's a couple ways around that. One, if you have enough time, you can reach out to the city and ask for one of their engineering drawings, which will show you what's what's the infrastructure in the road. But the really quick cheater way to do this is you can use Google Street View and yeah. you can look on it. Manhole covers. Manhole covers. So like Mm -hmm. if the sanitary manholes are always in the middle of the street. Yeah. Water. And so the other thing too is, um, storms, storm sewers, storm sewers are always on the side and water's usually on the side. But the other thing too is, um, we've all seen this time and time again where they've paint marked the, uh, the infrastructure, right? So you might be able to go on Google street view and see a bunch of blue lines running down the road. Right. Yeah. And let's say and this actually happened to me. I was looking at a, a property in my, my hometown and, um, had a very obvious severance and I was kind of looking at it like, why has no one done this? It was for sale. And, um, I went on Google street view. I didn't, see any like hard evidence of of infrastructure there so i went back in time on google street view and sure enough there's a big blue line running right across the side of the property so and i was i was right there was a big water main under there and it was not developable oh okay so that's things you can do you can look for hydrants and whatnot yeah. like you can you can pretty much figure out infrastructure yeah you gotta you gotta get a little crafty about how you find answers to what you need and i remember doing a lot of that when i was um you know adding additions in london you know you have to be able to quickly size up a property and figure out what can i do here Mm -hmm. um is it is it possible to develop obviously you're taking that to the next step there's a lot more moving parts when it comes with infrastructure Mm-hmm. And uh, so obviously the best thing to do is be able to talk to the city here because you don't want to make these mistakes. Yep. Not everybody can. Um, one other thing that you'll want to watch out for is capacity because I've run into this with one of the projects I was working on for a developer is that they didn't yet have sewage capacity for all the units they had site plan approval for. So it was approved as soon as capacity was there. So it's like, yes, you're approved. Just wait until we bring capacity in. It, it's a good point. I, I find with the small stuff, the little ones like and a twos, it's not likely to be a problem. Yeah, they're not likely to say too much to you about that. But you're 100 percent correct. If you're going to do a, a larger build, I don't know, maybe you're a dozen units plus. Yeah, they might bring the capacity issue to you. Um, but again, if you can get the engineering drawing ahead of time, or, or for example, yeah. Hamilton has it. Um, even as a bit of a layman, when you see that there's a sanitary sewer and it's only six inches big, uh, you, you can kind of infer that that's not great. Oh, um, like this, this sanitary main, it, it gives yeah. you the sizes of everything on, yeah. on that kind of stuff. So, right. So this is stuff 
that my, in my experience comes from looking at drawings, asking questions, looking at drawings some more, asking questions, doing more research and, you know, kind of doing case study properties and even yep. bringing it to them say, hey, if I wanted to do this here, would you guys support it? I used to do that all the time. Yep. It's a great way to learn from the city and they'll they'll just basically teach you for free. And, you know, like they're paid by tax dollars, so they're, <laughs> they're good with it. Um yeah, so that, I mean, obviously you've got yourself a process. Is there anything like you'd say to people beyond what you've already said that would sort of help them avoid a mistake, if, you know, in this market? I know the market's sort of cooling down a bit, but, you know, what could you suggest? Um, if you kind of, like I said, kind of go through that process I just talked about mm-hmm. and, um, and just kind of really do your homework on it you, you can you can educate yourself enough yeah. to kind of figure it out like i i help people all the time with with kind of looking at properties as well and kind of figuring out the severability um i've purchased a few of them just sight unseen because i've trusted the due yeah. diligence enough to, to do right that, so yeah once you get more comfortable that's yep. that's on the table maybe not right away no i wouldn't do that right away <laughs> yeah okay so in terms of uh, well you you had mentioned you know, if something's too small or if it's not, if it's not wide enough, like, can you give an idea of what's like, what in your mind is too small when you're looking at a lot to, to consider it as a possible severance? It is so up in the air. Like I'll give you Hamilton, for example, like their zoning typically requires 12 meters of frontage of frontage. Um, but they're regularly approving, uh, 25 foot lots in the lower city. That's like, uh, just shy of eight. Yeah. So that's, that's quite a minor variance, but you could go to the next city and maybe they require 12 meters and you want to bump it down to 11 and they might say, no, we've been denying all of these. We don't want this. You know what I mean? So that's where, that's where kind of talking to the planners and looking at past decisions can really save you on that. Used to really frustrate me with when the people in the building department or in zoning would say, oh yeah, you just got to go for a minor variance. I'm like, but what is the likelihood of getting a yes on that minor variance? Oh, I don't know. Just go, <laughs> here's the fee. Um, if you speak with the right people, they, you know, that have, that have approved these or have commented on other files, they yep. should know, right? Like one thing too, like you might have an admin person in the planning department go, oh yeah, like you just said, no problem, go for a minor variance. But the planner might be like, oh, we're, we wouldn't support that. You know what I mean? You yeah. got to keep in mind of who you're talking, who you're talking to, to as yeah. well. Um, and even then, uh, you'd mentioned earlier, like there are rare occasions where, um, the planning department might support an application and the committee of adjustment may still turn it down. Yeah. For whatever reason, whether it's right or wrong, it could be a personal yeah. dislike, which I don't think's fair, but, uh, yeah. I'm sure it's happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the 1%. I heard 99% if the city supports it, the committee will, but there's that 1%. And maybe in other cities, it's more than 1%. So you just got to keep your eyes open. But yeah, that would be the unfortunate. So, and, and that's the other question I have for you. Because there are no guarantees, what what are you doing to kind of have a plan B here? If plan A is development, what's plan B and does it work? And how does it work? Yeah, you definitely need to have a, a backup plan here. So like, for example, if you're if you're going to go after a house that you're just hoping to sever off a, a side yard per se, mm-hmm. and let's say you find out the hard way that you can't, you definitely want to go into that going, okay, can I throw this back up on the market for what I paid for it? Mm-hmm. Can I wholesale this? Can I, can I duplex convert this? Mm-hmm. Um, can I do a garden suite on it? You know what I mean? Maybe yeah. I can't sever it, but maybe I can still get that third unit through mm-hmm. another avenue. You, de- you definitely have to have secondary plans in the, the uh, the other point I'd make as well 
is um, sometimes when people list properties, they know what they have. They know they have a side yard that can be severed, or at least they suspect that. And sometimes they'll charge a premium for that. I've seen lots of listings where maybe maybe the house would be worth 500000 but they charge 800000 because they're already priced mm-hmm. in a severed lot. You can't pay premiums like that for that kind of stuff because if you're mistaken and yeah. you can't get that lot, you just got burned very, very bad. Yeah. So that's something you got to watch out for. Everyone who everyone who lists properties, almost everybody, seems to want to just get the absolute most out of it, right? Mm-hmm. So if they do know, you know they're going to build on a price. Um, anytime I look at somebody selling something with development potential or they've, yeah. they've gone into the site plan and I see the price they want, they want a number that, that wouldn't make sense even if my costs were you know as tight as possibly could be. Like That's where they start, at unreasonable. Yep. So that if you don't know your numbers, you're just going to get into something and get burned unless values just keep going up like they have been and then you know the time saves you yeah like another thing you want to watch out for too is are you going to negatively affect the value of the existing house to the point where it's problematic right Mm -hmm. so if if you have a a hundred foot frontage and you cut 50 off are you going to knock the value of the existing house down by a hundred thousand and is that a problem um in my experience that actually hasn't happened i've been fortunate that way but um it can and it will happen um especially if a, a property is valued on being such a nice big property and you're going to take half of it yeah um you could definitely negatively affect the uh the existing house too so that's something you absolutely have to factor in as well yeah definitely want to watch out for that how many of these have you done so far i guess not a lot of them are complete but you're in the process how many have you done so far sure so like my history on this is um i severed two lots in woodstock which i'm currently building semis on and i hope to do basement suites there so i'm trying to build four Four units. units um i did another one where i tore a house down and split the lots um into just two building lots and i flipped the land um where was that one Elmira. Okay. I saw one I was looking at for, for that type of thing in London. I was wondering if it was a one, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the numbers on that one are, are interesting because, uh, tearing down and splitting, um, doesn't always pencil out extremely well, especially in today's market. Mm-hmm. And we can circle back to that. Um, the other one I did, this was the most straightforward traditional one. Um, I bought a property in Wasaga beach that was a hundred feet frontage by 150 feet deep the house was completely on one side uh no minor variances nothing just severed a 50 foot by 150 foot lot beautiful that one was easy going so yeah if only we could get a few more like that so in that case why didn't somebody else do that um that's a really good question you know what i mean the as most wholesales are the house was very rough condition as was the whole property mm-hmm. um that one there i bought sight unseen i did my standard due diligence on it um saw that yeah this looks like a a slam dunk of of a severance um so as as to why no one else did it i I, I'm not completely sure. I don't think mm-hmm. the previous owners had a, a lot of money or maybe okay. wherewithal to do it. Um, but that's kind of how I came about it. Okay. So next question I have is you quit your job, obviously. What are you doing? Like, what's your primary income strategy? How often are you, 
actually getting paid or you know my experience with this type of thing is that there are long waits in between paychecks when you're flipping properties when you're developing properties even longer so how does that work for you it's a good question you're right from the real estate side of things like from my own investments yeah i probably get paid once twice whatever a year um but some of the other stuff i do is is the water sub meterings a, a source of income for me as well um and actually the wasaga one i i was the first one i i took partners on outside of my parents and okay. uh, they're doing a lot of infills uh, and some bigger stuff. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of worked with them, team up with them, um, kind of as an employee, but I've got the opportunity to hop in on, okay. on anything I want as well. So that's kind of those yeah. three things is what keeps me going right gotcha. now. Gotcha. Yeah, and you, you said you were uh, working with uh, another guest we've had on this show before, yep. Charles. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's been great. We connected over the severance thing. Um, yeah. They were kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. I was, and I uh, just reached out and it came yeah. together. So it's Charles and then his business partner. Uh, yeah, Steve Ford. Steve. Yeah, Steve. Uh, golfed with those guys a couple of times. They're, uh, they're uh, great people. Uh, Steve's been a, a big help with the new build, especially because it's, yeah. it's my first and he's yeah. quite knowledgeable. So. Yeah, Steve. Steve's like the super, you know, the execution construction side of things. Charles is obviously doing more like what you're doing and, yep. and the oversight on, on the development and severances and all that stuff. Yep. Um, okay, so they're working on the Wasaga one. Uh, it's done, actually. Um, so okay. we, we can kind of go through that one if sure. you wish. Yes. Yeah. Um, so essentially, um, we purchased that for four ten from a wholesaler. So this is the whole property. Yeah, uh, the whole property. Okay, so four ten purchase. Yep. Okay, and and tw- just so you're aware, twenty of that was a wholesale fee. Yep. So when we mortgaged on that, we could only go up to 390, 80% right, of 390,000. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, I got an, I was so, since I was still working at the time, I got an A rate mortgage on yeah. that, uh, which was about 1150 a month. Okay. Um, property taxes were nothing up there. Yeah. They were 1500 bucks for the year. Well, let's, let's go through like conceptually, you bought it, operated it as a rental while you developed it, or did you just get right into the, no, we, the house, like I said, the house is pretty beat up. So, um, oh, so you just started renovating. We started it. renovating it. Okay. Uh, we thought about tearing it down, but you know what? Yeah. When you look at these, yeah. tearing down when you pencil these out almost never makes sense compared to keeping the house. Yeah. Is as long as you can fix it up to the point that is livable. Okay. So what was the existing house there? Was it like it a was, bungalow? It was an older house? It was a slab on grade like no frost wall, like literal slab on grade, uh, two bedroom, small kind of cottage like mm-hmm. thing. I had, I, it was about 900 square feet. Okay. So a small little thing. Um, what did you have into renovating that one? About 50,000. So you had 50,000 into that. And then you would have had carrying costs for the whole parcel, uh, over the time frame you guys did it. What would you estimate that would have been? Um, like I said, the mortgage, uh, carrying costs about 1500 a month. So times 12. Okay. And then any other costs, like you would have had some soft costs, uh, some survey, uh, you know, some drafting costs. What did you get into for costs to go ahead with the severance? Um, so survey ran me just shy of four grand on, on that. Um, as a drafter, I've got a big leg up on this stuff because I take the survey and do my own severance plans. Um, and the other thing I haven't mentioned yet is I've represented myself at the committee of adjustment on everything I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the majority of people hire a planner, yeah. um, which can run you 10, 15,000, even on a small project like this. Um, but 
to date, I've only ever represented myself. So I saved. So in this costs. one, you went, you went and did the the meeting yourself. Yep. Okay. And that one would have been an easy one to support because there's no minor variance needed. And and that's why, like, if yeah. I if I ever ran into trouble with the city or they weren't in support, I would hire a planner. It's just yeah. as of right now, I have I've had very little resistance in the yeah. stuff I've done. Oh, and you learn so much better what you can and can't do by doing it yourself. Yeah. But of course, like there are other people who always hire a planner, and that works really well for them. So at scale you're probably going to want to hire help i would yeah so i would say getting to the point of approval um to approval for the severance that cost me about nine grand um just survey um some legal costs and the application fees yeah what were the legal costs and the application fees uh legal costs around three grand um the application actually wasn't too bad it was only around two grand but if you're in a situation where you need minor variances those can add up quickly on top of that yeah and and some cities will give you just they'll charge you once for minor variances as you as you want other cities might charge you for each and every minor variance so that can that can add up quick okay so for you, it was basically, uh, I think you said it was a $50,000 reno. Mm-hmm. You had uh, 1500 for 12 months carrying costs, $4,000 plus 3000 plus 2000 That's pretty much the project. Yep. So you kept it tight there. So you're in for like $77,000 and get a lot out of it. That was to get two approval. So there's still yeah. more that comes Did you build? Oh, you built? No. You no, I flipped this one. I flipped okay. the house and the land. Okay, so, so tell me what else. So the back end of this story was um, we essentially, once you get approval to sever a property, they're going to stick you with a whole bunch of conditions that you have to fulfill. And once again, go look at the meeting minutes from prior uh, decisions because you're going to see right away what, what mm-hmm. conditions are going to stick you with. So standard things are like, you have to produce an R plan, which is like a legal survey that's going to get registered on title. Mm-hmm. Um, that's standard everywhere. That's not overly expensive. Um, there, there's other stuff like uh, proving that there's no infrastructure under there, which can be mm-hmm. done with locates if you go yeah. that route. Um, but the big one, and this varies wildly by um, by city, it's are they going to make you service the new lot? as part of a condition mm-hmm. or can you do it at the time of building permit okay so the one thing i'll add here is typically you only have one year to fulfill all your conditions which is not a lot of time actually when it when it comes to how much work can be involved with this mm-hmm. so wasaga did make us um service the new lot problem Meaning, with tap into the main bring, tap into the bring main, into the lot line bring a new water service in bring a new sanitary service in yeah now the problem with that is a lot of places won't let you do it over the winter yeah right so you don't even have that year that you think you have um contractors are as busy as ever so uh that one was a scramble uh we yeah. just got that done this this spring and it already accepted offers on both the lot and the house okay so in order to complete the severance, I had to complete the servicing. Yeah, which we we did. I got it done, but uh, close close call on that one. Yeah. So did you have um, to bring in electrical as well, or that's just no, separate, separate? No, but okay. okay, good question. So on that one, there was an overhead wire to the existing house that crossed mm-hmm. over the new lot. Okay. So we actually had to move that. Uh, we had to put a pole on the other side of the existing house. Yeah. So. Um, so essentially, yeah, I had to move the hydro line, had to service the lot, do the standard things like um, like I just talked about. And one other thing uh, definitely to note 
is they're going to make you pay something called a parkland fee. And what it is, it's a kind of a theoretical fee that when new, when builders do new subdivisions, they are required to allot 5% of the land for parkland. When you do an infill, that's not possible. So what they'll do is they're going to ask you for cash in lieu. Um, Wasaga made us pay 5% of the appraised value of the, typically it's of the new lot, except Wasaga actually asked us for the whole property prior to severance. Oh, okay. Uh, only place I've ever seen do that. But on the flip side of things, when uh, I did the same thing in Woodstock, um, it was not a condition. It was part of building permit and they just charged me a grand each. Okay. Um, when I did the one in Elmira, I want to say it was 5% up to a maximum of five grand. So it's not always as bad as it sounds, but like Wasaga, they took their whole 5%. Okay. What did that amount to? Like 19,000. Okay. So you had 19,500 for that. You had, what was the cost to bring the service from the main to the lot line? Um, so far, it's been thirty grand, but I am expecting another, let's say, another ten grand on top of that because there okay. were some extras on that. Okay, so you've got basically sixty thousand dollars of costs at that level. Yeah, about that. Okay, and then you've got offers on both. So your total cost for um, acquisition, renovation, and approval and fulfilling your conditions is five hundred and forty-six. But you got two properties to sell. Mm-hmm. So what were you able to sell them for? We sold the existing house for five hundred thousand. Oh, that sounds like it's. Good project already. Okay, what'd you sell the lot for? Three twelve five. I guess obviously there's going to be a, a there's few. realtor commissions. Yeah, not as well. Yeah, so you're going to pay a realtor four percent, five percent, four, four. Okay, so times point oh four, and then you were going to have uh, obviously all the costs in. So about two hundred and thirty thousand dollars in profit ballpark. Yep, right around yeah. there. Um, now that's also before taxes. So when you sell land, yeah. HST can come into play here. Okay. So here, here's what I know about HST and the standard. I'm not an accountant line. Yeah. Um, but essentially, if it is in the process of a business, so a corporation, HST is going to apply. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to pay HST on the sale of the lot. Now, it's yeah. not a straight 13% loss because there was a lot of costs in getting this severed. Yes. Right. So I'll be able to claim some of that back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I had around 230 before taxes. 230 before taxes. And then, so say your HST works out to be like 8%. Sure. So that'd be 25 grand. Yep. Okay. So you might... You might be closer to 200, but that's still a pretty solid project for what was it, like a one year. It was one, like exactly one year. Yeah. Now the, the market sort of did bless you a little bit here yep. in terms of going up. If it hadn't gone up, do you th- like, where do you think that total number would have been? Like instead of 812,000 for the, the package, mm-hmm. would you have been 700,000? I, I could see that being the case. Yeah. Yeah. So you still, still would have been profitable, but the market just made it that much better. It did. Like, I'll add one thing too to like these severance things is um, it does not require a lot of time. Um, I'm not on site very much. It's kind of all from the desktop. Yeah, this one had a renovation component. Um, the one I did in Elmira where I tore a house down, like, I, if I never showed up, I probably still could have done it because yeah. it's literally just you do the plans, hire a contractor. And um, I find these have a pretty good return on time when it's all okay. said and done. Yeah, I mean that sounds fantastic. How how do you go about finding these though? So obviously you become a little bit of an expert in the process and it probably makes it easier to spot an opportunity. But mm-hmm. where do you look to find one? 
Uh, as always, on, on markets, the one way to do it. But like I said, there's kind of two trains of thought there. One, there's properties where everyone and their brother can see that there's a severance there and it's going to go for top dollar. But then there's other ones where... It's more questionable, right? There's that. Or it's maybe maybe people don't know you can sever a 25-foot lot, right? And people aren't yeah. looking at it like that. But the other one, though, is maybe there's an attached garage and all you have to do is rip the garage off of it and move the parking to the other yeah. side of the house and you've got a lot there and people don't look at that or maybe it's maybe it's the house itself maybe there's like mm-hmm. an addition that juts over and you're gonna have to rip 10 feet of the house off but for a three four hundred thousand dollar lot depending what city you're in it's worth it all day long so. yeah so it's just being able to work those numbers back quick. You want to be able to just pull out a sheet of paper back at the envelope and, yep. and just crunch these numbers real quick to know if it even makes sense to pursue it. Absolutely. And like there, there's other ones too. Like if you see a property that's like un, undoubtedly severable, like you can do the mailer, the door knock, like that kind of stuff too. I've I've tried unsuccessfully to date, but I, I, yeah. it'd be nice to do that because you're not under the gun on something like that. You have time to talk to the planners yeah. and, and do like your proper homework on it. So you're saying like one one approach could be just as you drive around or get to know neighborhoods, just make a list of properties you think would work, even if they're not for sale, and then just keep in contact with them if you can. Even better, you can spot it on the same mapping that you use to do the due diligence on it. Yeah, Google map it and... Or yeah, use your city's map and you'll see houses where they're skewed to one side of the lot yep. and it looks like it might work. Um, you know, would you ever? What's the smallest you would even functionally try to go with uh, for a lot width? The twenty-five. The twenty-five. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's if you want to detach, though, right? Like, what if you wanted to do a semi? I guess you could get away with. But then you'd have to tear one down. If you're, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I find twenty-five is kind of kind of the cutoff, and even then, twenty-five only flies in yeah some handful of cities. Right. Yeah. Others is going to be a hard no. So whoever's listening and watching talk to your city, like actually find out what's being approved. Look up at those meeting minutes and find out what they're approving. The other thing I'd just say about finding these things too is um, especially in the cities uh, in the larger cities, the easy ones have all been done. There's there. I know everyone sees a corner lot and they go, I think I can sever that, but somebody's probably tried. Someone's probably tried or like you might see a corner lot and it looks like you can fit a house there and physically you probably could, but it's maybe only 60 feet deep and you need like 90 feet. Right. So I find that when it comes, especially the larger cities, um, you have to get creative. So where I did that one in Wasaga, I literally did that by rights, no minor variances, anything. When you do it in the city, you're going to need minor variances almost certainly, or, you can look out like what I did in Woodstock, where maybe you have to buy the two houses on the corner. The nice yeah. thing, though, is if you get the two houses on the corner, sometimes two lots start to become feasible. Oh, okay, okay. You know what I mean? So the flip side to this is the small towns, mm-hmm. lots of these things around. You know what I mean? So it's... Uh, You're saying because people aren't paying as much attention to the smaller towns? There's that, and I just find smaller towns are a little more haphazardly arranged. So yes, 100%. Where, where these become applicable is they're in older parts of town where it was developed 100-plus years ago, just kind of haphazardly, lot lines, just wherever. And those are where you're going to find these things. If you go, like, I'll use out west, for example, everything's on the grid system out there, and a lot of the cities there were laid out by the railways a hundred years ago 
there's not as much opportunities from what I've seen because it's just so cut and dry mm-hmm. and excess land like you might see in around here. It just doesn't seem to be as available from what I've I've seen. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and to your note about the small towns, yeah, they're just not nearly as organized. Yep. They, the way they do stuff is, uh, you know, I, I started dealing with London and then went into some of these smaller towns build, building, and um, it's actually kind of nice to deal with the smaller town. Mm-hmm. They, they're a little more flexible. It's It's got its pros and cons. Like yeah. one, I have in my own experience found the smaller municipalities um it easier to get on the phone with the planners that's yeah. been my experience um i could i also find that their zoning they require more you're always going to need more frontage and area in the yeah. smaller towns but the flip side of that is there usually is lots with more frontage yeah. and and size to it um and depending on the town there might be more pushback to mm-hmm. you coming in and, and doing this um hasn't really been my experience but i've kind of heard and read okay a few things about that okay awesome now dan is there anything you hoped i'd ask you about that i have not uh, asked you about yet no that that's largely it like if you okay. wanted to chat quick about the one where like i actually tore the house down because i know a lot of people approach me about like that scenario as well Sure. You know, do the the brief summary of of what that looks like. The long and short of that is when when you sever a lot, like on a corner or a side yard, and you get to keep the house, and especially if you don't hurt the value too bad, you've just profited whatever that lot is worth. Mm -hmm. When you buy something that you have to tear down, you still paid money for that house, right? So, um, for example, like if you pay four thirty for something, uh, a tear down, yeah. And you see that lots are going, lots that size are going for two fifty each. Well, by the time you pay to demolish the house and, and for two hundred grand on top, you, you've essentially just paid retail. Now, yeah. if you can maybe get the upper hand if you're a builder and and you know what I mean, and can can kind of make make uh, advancements on the uh, on the build, but um, that's something you really got to watch for. The the one though that I did in Elmira. Um, I was able to pick that up for like two ninety, and I bought that repossessed off the bank. Um, it was right when COVID rolled in, so I got fortunate to some degree because everyone, yeah, kind of backed down for a little bit. Um, but on that one, there, yeah, I tore the house down, uh, severed the lots, and I sold that for about four thirty. So I, I did well on it, but not even remotely so as much as when you get to keep the house yeah. and sever the lot that's kind of the gold standard when it comes to this so yeah the house has got to be worth a lot i mean but again it's basic back of the envelope numbers right you look, okay what what in the current market is the average house selling for the average lot selling for just work those numbers out does it make sense for me to pay this no i got to tear the house down pay these planning costs am i am i going to make profit and am i happy with that mm-hmm. so cool all right so dan where do people reach you or follow you if they want to know more learn more or just follow you in general sure a few different spots um instagram is illis underscore invest and my last name is i l l e s uh my website is waterbillsolutions.com and anyone can feel free to add me on facebook as well cool awesome and uh final words of wisdom before we wrap up uh, just double check this time and time again if you wanna if you wanna go through one of these and uh, don't don't get the shiny object syndrome either. Like uh, th- this is great, but um, just make sure it is something you legitimately want to do. If it is something you're thinking about, yeah. If you're gonna build it into your business, uh, have a plan. Absolutely, <laughs> have a plan and make sure it fits. 
Okay, Dan, thanks a lot. It was really nice to finally meet you. I know we've been talking for a while and uh, looking forward to seeing how you do with the rest of these projects. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Please make sure to share this episode far and wide. Help it help more people. I really appreciate you tuning in. I'll see you on the next one.